Welcome once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's great to be here to worship Him this morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy in this time we have now to come before You to ask for Your blessing and to seek Your will, to seek for You to just enlighten us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. I thank You for His presence here and His presence within us. And God, that He is here to to illumine the Scriptures for us. God, I pray and ask that You'd work mightily in our midst, that You'd help us to not only hear what You are saying, but to apply it to our lives and to be diligent to take it out of this building and into the world in which we live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Zechariah. And I need to get there. My bookmark was in the wrong spot. We've been working our way through the book of Zechariah. And if you remember, Zechariah parallels or has much in common with the book of Haggai. And for the sake of those who haven't been part of this and haven't been through this this study in Zechariah so far, I'm going to do a little bit of a review of of where we've been and the background of Zechariah, though I'm going to try to keep it brief because I picked on Dan last week. He said he had 3,500 words or 3,600 words or how how many ever words he said. And I said, Dan, I usually have 2,500 written and I preach for 50 minutes. So this is going to be a long sermon. And then this week I got looking and I'm like 5,000 words. So we got a lot of, we got a long ways to go. We'll probably be here a couple of hours. Just get comfortable. But, so Haggai was written when the Jews returned to Jerusalem. They'd been taken captive to Babylon. They'd been there 70 years, remember? And they were allowed to return. They came back to Jerusalem. They began to rebuild the temple. There was struggle and frustration and the book of Haggai, Haggai the prophet writes and says, return to the work of the Lord. And if you remember Zechariah written at the same time with a similar focus, but instead of just return to the work of the Lord, says return to me. I want you, I want not just your ministry, not just your hands, not just you to be doing, I want you to give me your heart. So they complement each other, these two messages. And as they return from Babylonian captivity and they begin this work of the temple, there's frustration and struggles and the temple that they're building doesn't look like anything like what the temple used to be. And it's easy to look back and see how glorious things used to be and to look forward and not see hope. And Zechariah gives, gives the people hope and he does so primarily because he's given these visions. And there's these eight night visions that he's given by the Lord to give the people a hope and to encourage them to serve the Lord with all of their hearts. And today we get to Zechariah 3, and it's in that context that we have this vision from Zechariah 3, which the Lord gave to him. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah 3, verses 1-10. through Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. 
And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before you, Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. We've got a lot of ground to cover, as I mentioned. There's several. There's really enough here for several weeks of messages. And I've struggled this week and really coming to the conclusion or coming to the understanding myself that I don't need to say every single thing that is in this text. I need to take the the main point of this text, and draw out several applications and apply them. And there will be other times, other opportunities to look at this text and continue to learn from it. Praise God for His Word, that it is living and active, and in that way that we can continue to come back to His Word and see new truths and understand it and apply it freshly day by day. So today, as we work through this text, my goal for this is to look at verses uh, 4 through 10 and draw out three specific truths or promises that are realized in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So four through ten and three specific promises. Having said that, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at verses one through three, so we have a context or an understanding of verses four through ten. Clear as mud? Clear as mud. So before we look at these promises, it's imperative that we look at verses one through three and the three main characters of this vision as they provide the backdrop or the understanding for the promises. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 1. There we read, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So there's a beginning of a new vision. Zechariah, he sees this vision, and what does he see? He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Joshua is a real historical figure of Zechariah's day. He was indeed the high priest. And it's important to note that there's very little known about Joshua. We, don't, we know a lot about other Joshuas. There's many Joshuas in the Scriptures. But this particular Joshua, we don't know much about. The Scripture references him and talks about him in a couple of places. We don't really know what he was like or even much of what he did. They just name him. He was the high priest at the time that the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. Well, we know he's the, generation, he's, he's, he's the grandson of Sariah, who was the high priest when Jerusalem was taken captive into Babylon. And we also know that he served in the same capacity as high priest. But we don't know much else. But what we do know is that the high priest was a representative, and we know what the high priest did. So the high priest served as a representative. So this text really isn't so much about Joshua as it is about us. The point of this text is that Joshua represents the people as a whole. He serves as the people's representative, an intercessor between the people and God. And in the same way, when we see Joshua, we should see ourselves in some way as he represents us in this vision. 
So the primary role of the, of the high priest, again, was to intercede on behalf of the people. A ministry that's most clearly seen in the Day of Atonement, which is described, by the way, in Leviticus 16. And if you have time to read that this week, I would encourage you to read that text talking about this Day of Atonement. And on the annual Day of Atonement, though, just in summary, what happened was uh, with Aaron and the successive priests after him, that the high priest would sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and his family. And the blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's glory resigned, the place where God lived. And there he was to bring, and then he was to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. So he makes a sacrifice for himself, and then a sacrifice for the people, right? Whatever their sins had been. And its blood was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant as well. And then the other goat was used as what's called the scapegoat. And this is important because we use this term, the scapegoat, in our, even in our English language, without really necessarily connecting it back to the Scriptures. So when somebody's a scapegoat, right, they're, they're the means by which we get off from whatever we're, uh, we've done or we're involved in. or They're the, the means by which we uh, pass off what's been done wrong to someone else. And the high priest would place his hands on the head of this goat and confess over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, of the Jews, and send the goat out to be released into the wilderness. And thus the scapegoat carried away the sins of all the people, symbolizing the forgiveness of sins for that year until the next Day of Atonement came. So in our text, we have Joshua, the high priest, a descendant of Aaron, who intercedes with God on behalf of the people Israel. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, remember from earlier in our series in Zechariah, the angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. That the angel of the Lord is Jesus before He was born in the flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity. And again, we don't have time to study all that, all those verses, but if you remember that He not only represents the Lord, but He is the Lord. He speaks not only on behalf of the Lord, but He speaks as the Lord Himself. And you'll see those verses if you look up Genesis 16, verses 7-10, through 10, or Genesis 22, verses 9-18, through 18, or Exodus 32, uh, 3, verses 2-6. through 6. And many other times throughout the Old Testament, you see this angel of the Lord appear, and He speaks as though He is God. And it is indeed Jesus in His ministry in the Old Testament. But it's also important to know that the high priest, Joshua, is seen standing before the Lord. And it seems to indicate that he's not just standing in His presence, but it's a term used to represent his ministry or his service as a priest. We see this language in Deuteronomy 10.8. Deuteronomy 10.8 says this, At the time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant. So these are the priests, the tribe of Levi. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to serve Him. So there's the same language. The Levites were to stand before the Lord. They were to serve the Lord. And Hezekiah, when he became king of Judah, he gathered all the, all the priests together. And he said to them, in 2 Chronicles 29, he said, My sons, you've been negligent, is what he said. My sons, you've been negligent. Don't be negligent now. Now's not the time to neglect the work of the priesthood. For the Lord has chosen you, and he says, to stand before him. And this isn't just standing in the presence, but instead the representation is do the work of the ministry. 
So the picture we have thus far is one of the high priest performing his priestly duties. He's doing the work of the ministry before the angel of the Lord, before the pre-incarnate Christ. So having been introduced to Joshua and the angel of the Lord in this vision, let's continue on reading verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, it says, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. We read that part. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you have, you have Joshua, you have the angel of the Lord, and now we have this third character in this vision, Satan. The name Satan simply means adversary or opponent. This is not just any adversary or any opponent. This is none other than the one who deceived Eve in the garden. The serpent. The devil himself. So devil, by the way, means slanderer. So you have Satan, which means adversary or opponent. You have devil, which means slanderer. Similar idea. Satan in this text is seen as the adversary of Joshua. And just as Joshua represents us, so also Satan is our adversary. The work of Satan is clear throughout Scripture. If you're not familiar with who Satan is, we know from Scripture that he is a tempter. Just as he tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4, so he also tempts all of God's people. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And he said, For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. So Satan tempts, but not only is he a tempter, but he is also a deceiver. Just as he deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden and said, Surely if you eat this fruit, you won't die. Surely God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because He doesn't want you to be like Him. So also, He continues today the work of deception. You know the scary thing about deception? You think you're right. You're deceived. So you say, somebody says, no, don't do that. And you go, no, this is, the, this is the right thing to do. That's the problem with deception. He continues this work of deception. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3-4, through 4, and said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded, he's deceived the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't even see the gospel of Christ. Or Revelation 20, verses 1-3, through Then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So if there's any doubt in your mind yet as to who this character is in Zechariah's vision, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Because he's a deceiver. He's a tempter, he's a deceiver, and he's an accuser. Just as he stands ready to accuse Joshua in Zechariah 3, so also he does the same thing today. He is the accuser. We read in Revelation 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. You want to know what Satan does? Satan, he tempts us. He deceives us. And he accuses us before God day and night. The point I'm trying to make is that he, Satan, is opposed to us. He tempts us. He deceives us. He accuses us. Why? 
Not because he's just against us, but because he's opposed to God. He's opposed to God himself. In fact, he's so opposed to God because he wants to be God. His problem is pride, much like our problem is pride. It's that age-old expression that I say again and again when I preach. I want what I want, and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. And I'm willing to sin if I don't get it. That's our problem. We want to be sovereignly in control of our own lives. We don't want to submit to God. In pride, we say, no, God, not your way, but my way. If you read Isaiah 14, that's what Satan did to God. He said, I will be this way. I will, I will, I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan is our adversary because he's God's adversary. So now that we've seen that Joshua represents us and that Satan is our adversary, let's look to verses 2-3 through and see that the Lord is our advocate. Praise God that though we have an adversary, we also have an advocate. Look at verses uh, Zechariah 3, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Notice that Joshua doesn't say anything in his own defense. Joshua is largely silent. What can Joshua say? Also, the Lord doesn't deny the accusations. He doesn't, whatever, we'll see what Satan likely accuses him of, but we don't, we don't see the Lord saying, well, no, that's not true, Satan. He doesn't deny the accusations, but rather rebukes the accuser. In other words, the Lord doesn't defend Joshua. Instead, the Lord defends his choice of Joshua. He says that he has chosen Joshua and Jerusalem Again, Joshua as a representative. I've chosen these people. He says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And this should immediately bring to mind the words of Amos 4. For Zechariah, this would have brought to mind the words of Amos 4.11, where he said, I overthrew you, God said, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. I overthrew you like Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand, snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me. You were like a firebrand pulled from the blaze, rescued, and yet you still don't turn to me. So again, we have this vision, this idea of Zechariah and his message of turning back to the Lord. See, the people in Zechariah's day had been in the fire. They'd felt the Lord's mighty hand of discipline. They'd been taken to Babylon But God was the one who snatched them out of the fire. So to say that Joshua shouldn't be standing there, Satan's accusation, why is he here, was not merely an accusation against Joshua, but also the Lord Himself. The Lord was saying to Satan, how dare you question me? As He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Because the Lord will be the judge of His people, but he will also have compassion on his servants, for that is the character of God. So the Lord reminded Satan that it was by his doing that Joshua was serving in this capacity, and that it was by his doing that the people had been restored to their land. It wasn't because they were worthy. Their return was a gift of grace. 
They were like a firebrand snatched from the fire. It wasn't because they rescued themselves. They were in a fire destined to be consumed, but God in His grace snatched them out of that fire. And the Lord says, I'm the one who brought them out. So don't question me, Satan. Then as we zoom out, we take a, a zoom out from the text and we see Joshua's condition, we get a clue as to what Satan, the adversary, may have brought as an accusation against Joshua. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. So he's, stand, again, standing before the angel. He's serving the Lord. He's operating in an official capacity. He's the equivalent, if you will, of a pastor. Maybe a pastor of pastors. He's the high priest, right? So... I don't know who that is in modern times. Um, uh, I've got names that are running through my head, but I'm not going to say them. So, a pastor of pastors, like the ultimate pastor, right? He's, he's doing the work of the ministry, and he's clothed with filthy garments. And Satan undoubtedly said, look at him. He's covered in filth, and he's, perpo- he's performing your service. And I'll tell you what, as a pastor, I get up here to preach, and there's not a week that I don't think, who am I to get up here? I'm covered in filth. And, and here I am preaching your word. We talked in Sunday school about, about leadership and, and respecting and, and honoring leadership. And, and I'm thinking, oh, I just want to crawl under the pew right now because, the, because of who I am and the sin, the filth that covers me. I am utterly unrighteous. It's not, there's no righteousness derived in and of myself. The only righteousness I have is that which comes through Jesus Christ. The word filthy here, by the way, carries the idea of not just being dirty, but conveys the idea of human excrement. This text, and the biblical text, is graphic, folks. So the picture, the vision given by Zechariah, is one of the high priest standing before a holy and righteous God, performing the work of the ministry with feces smeared all over his clothes. You know, I think sometimes in our churches we worry about whether the pastor wears a suit or whether he wears a tie, right? Imagine if I stood up here with human excrement smeared all over my clothes. And I'm telling you, there's a piece of me that almost wants... No, I I never want to do that. But there's a piece of me that wants to do that. Because I don't think you get it. I don't think I get it. The utter grossness and vileness of what is pictured here. If anyone, if there was anyone who would have been thought to be clean, it would have been the high priest. And this should remind us all of our own sinfulness. For again, Joshua represents the people. The point is not just that Joshua was covered in filth, but that all of us are in the same desperate position. That's why Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, For all of us, who have become like one who is unclean, and all our, un- all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The picture is of a dirty menstrual rag. Again, the Scripture is graphic. So when we read Romans 3.23, I think in church we read it like this. We go, well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what it should do is make us want to throw up. All have sinned. It is vile and disgusting. We fall short of the glory of God. But you know what? Praise God that we have an advocate with the Father. Praise God that 1 John 2 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So how does he advocate for us? 1 John 2 tells us that he is the propitiation. He advocates by being that propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, if you will, for our sins. He's the perfect sacrifice that the Day of Atonement was meant to point forward to. And if you read Hebrews 9, read Hebrews 9, and, and we look, Hebrews 9 looks back on the Day of Atonement. It says the priest would come year after year offering these sacrifices, but it couldn't make the people clean. But now we have a greater high priest who's come and offered a sacrifice once and for all. He's entered a temple better than the old temple. The temple of his body. And he's, he's lived and he's made the ultimate and perfect sacrifice that no more do sacrifices need to be made. See, all of this points forward to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've wanted, for, I want so badly to go back and rechange, to create the name of the series to be the Gospel of Zechariah. Because it's all about Jesus and the Gospel. Really, this whole book is about Jesus and the Gospel. The, the Old Testament isn't just about some distant, far-off God who no, we no longer serve. It all points to Jesus. And we see that especially in this book of Zechariah. So with verses 1-3 through three in mind, particularly the fact that all of us, like Joshua, have sinned against a holy and just God, And though we have an adversary, we also have an advocate in Jesus Christ. With all that in mind, let's briefly look at three promises that can can be revealed in verses 4-10 through of our text. So verses 4-10. through So if it took us 20 minutes to get through the first three verses, and we've got, what, six verses left? Seven verses left? Okay. Anyway, so the first promise, number one, the first point in your sermon outline is, number one, the Lord removes our filthiness. The Lord removes our filthiness. That's the first promise, folks. Look at verse 4 again. He spoke and said to those who were standing before Him, saying, remove the filthy garments from Him. And this isn't just about garments. For He goes on and says, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. He doesn't ignore the sin. He doesn't try to cover up the sin. You know, he doesn't say, you know what, let's get another robe and maybe we'll put another robe over the top of that robe and maybe, maybe people won't notice the smell. Or you know what, hey angels, why don't you get a clothespin because this really is gross. He doesn't try to clean up the mess. He reclothes him. He removes the sin and he replaces the vileness with festal robes of righteousness. Folks, if this is not about Jesus, then I don't know what is. This is all about Jesus and what He does for us. He removes our filthy garments and clothes us in righteousness. That's what the Scripture teaches. That's why in John 1, when John the Baptist he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why in 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter said, and he himself bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He removes our sin and he replaces it with a righteousness. How? For by his wounds you are healed. Folks, this is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That every one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior. 
that we all stand before God guilty in filthy robes. That Joshua represents us. And we stand before God guilty in our sin, but Christ, through His life, His perfect sinless life, His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection from the dead, He removes that sin and replaces that sin with robes of righteousness so that God sees us through Christ's work. It's been said that it's like we're in a courtroom. And this text is very much like a courtroom drama. Here you have have Zechariah standing and you have Satan accusing. It's like we're in a courtroom and we're guilty beyond all belief that there's no defense that we are guilty. But the Lord Jesus takes the punishment that we rightly deserve. That is the Gospel, folks. It's not about cleaning ourselves up. It's not about trying to remove the filth from ourselves. It's about looking to the only one who can ever do that. We are desperately wicked. You folks and me, this is not about just you and me, are more sinful than you ever thought. But Jesus is more gracious than you ever thought or could ever imagine. So having seen first that the Lord removes our righteousness, now let's look at our second promise. The second promise is the Lord calls us to faithful service. Number two, the Lord calls us to faithful service. Look at verse 5. Then I, this is Zechariah speaking now. Zechariah says, Then I said, Let them put a clean robe, a clean turban on his head. So Zechariah sees this scene. And they're going to remove his, his filthy robe and they're going to put on new clean garments. And Zechariah bursts out in the middle of his vision. He says, let him put a clean turban on his head too. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And it seems like the angels here, there's a, in the vision, just by way of explanation, the angels are the ones putting uh, these garments on. Joshua in this vision. And Zechariah sees that Joshua has now been made clean and is now in a position to serve the Lord. Not because of his own righteousness, but because of the Lord's work in his life. Because the Lord has removed his iniquity. And therefore, he cries out and says, let them put a clean turban on his head. This seems to point back to Exodus 28 and other Old Testament passages. Speaking of a turban being put on the priest on the the head of the high priest. And Aaron in Exodus 28 wore a turban with a gold plate with the inscription, Holy to the Lord. Set apart to the Lord for service. Thus Zechariah is saying, let him be set apart for service. Lord, you've made him righteous. Now let him serve in that righteousness. And after the turban is placed on his head, notice what the Lord says in verses 6-7. through And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways, and if you perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. In other words, if you do these things, and if you serve me in this way, if you commit to me and my ways, you'll be able to enter into the same very presence as the angels. You will have direct access to God. We don't need a high priest to represent us anymore. That it's not that we need a high priest. There's no intercessor. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And furthermore, this faithful service is not optional. 
He says, you've been clothed with righteousness. Zechariah says, good, then put a clean turban on his head. And then the Lord says, now serve me. It's not optional. That with those clothes of righteousness come the responsibility of faithful service. And that if we're not clothed in faithful service, we need to ask ourselves, have we been clothed in righteousness? If we're not faithfully serving the Lord, have we put on the, has the Lord put those clothes of righteousness on us? Because the only reaction, when you're in the pit of hell, and I've been there, and God picks you up, removes those filthy garments, and puts on clothes of righteousness, the only reaction is to say, I will serve the Lord. I, I, I must serve the Lord. Here I am, Lord, send me is the only reaction. And if we struggle to say, here I am, Lord, send me, then we have to ask, has the Lord removed those filthy garments from us? Maybe we need to turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, remove these filthy rags from me. So knowing that the Lord removes our our filthiness and the Lord calls us to faithful service, now the third promise we see is this, that the Lord provides hope for the future. Thirdly, the Lord provides hope for the future. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Starting in verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone which I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. These words of the Lord are meant to direct Joshua's gaze forward to the coming work of the Messiah. The work that Christ, his advocate, our advocate, would do in his atoning death on the cross. See, the titles used here would have all been immediately recognized by Joshua. He would have understood who this servant was. When he says, my servant, it would have been understood. If you remember us preaching through, working through the servant songs and understanding who the servant was, if you uh, remember Isaiah 52 verses 13 through, or 12, excuse me, through uh, 53, 12, it says this, Behold, my servant will prosper. So Isaiah says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what he had not, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And it continues to talk about the ministry of Jesus. Folks, the Scriptures point forward. The Old Testament Scriptures point forward to a coming Messiah who would suffer and die for the sins of the people. I remember meeting with um, uh, at the Jewish synagogue when I was in Bible college with my cl- one of my classes, and we asked the director of education, we said, are you waiting for the Messiah? Are you longing to see the Messiah still today? And she said, well, there's really no reference to any kind of Messiah in the Old Testament. She said there's a couple of obscure passages in Isaiah that maybe point to something like it, but the, the Scripture, the, 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 the Jewish Bible, she didn't call it the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures Bible is not about a coming Messiah. Isaiah 52 and 53 is very much about Jesus. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That is the my servant that is spoken of in Zechariah. And Zechariah would have understood that clearly. Next, he calls him the branch. Again, a reference to the coming Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5-6, through it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the, his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So he says, there's one coming. He's called my servant. He's called the branch. And finally, the reference to the stone with seven eyes points also to the coming of the Messiah. The number seven, there's much debate about this text, right? The number seven is the, the idea of uh, completeness or perfection or seeing all things. And I think that's what's really being pointed toward here. Is that there's coming the stone that's perfect, and Peter, in 1 Peter 2, looks back on these many Old Testament references to a choice stone, a cornerstone, a perfect stone, and connects them all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, "...and coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture." Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Don't miss this. That when Zechariah read that, when Zechariah heard these words, when he saw this vision, they're in the middle of rebuilding the temple. The temple made of stone. And he says, You've laid the cornerstone, you've you've laid the foundation. He's immediately thinking, We've laid the foundation, we've laid the cornerstone, and we're building this temple. But there's a temple coming that's even better than this. And Zechariah doesn't understand all of what is what the Lord is revealing to him looking ahead. You see, prophecy, when the Old Testament prophets look at prophecy, they look and they see mountaintops, but they don't see all the valleys between the mountains. They see key ideas and themes, but they don't see all that lies ahead. He would have understood that the Lord was pointing forward to the future hope of the coming Messiah. But he didn't necessarily see the Messiah coming in two advents, that the Messiah would come and die for the sins of the people, and that He'd return and reign and rule in righteousness. But we know that today because we look back on the other side of 
history. We look back on having seen that the Messiah has come, that He did die for our sins, and we look forward to the fact that He's coming again to reign and rule in righteousness. So just as this gave them hope as they looked forward, so also this text gives us hope as we look forward to His second coming, as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we know, just as Zechariah did, Zechariah looked forward and he said, I can see the, the Lord revealed to him, and the Lord said to him, in that day, wrong will be made right and there will be peace. He said, in that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And we look forward to the day when that prophecy is ultimately fulfilled. That the Lord Jesus Christ will reign here on earth. And there will be no more war. We won't be talking about, is North Korea going to blow up Israel? We won't be talking about what happens if Iran decides to continue to develop nuclear weapons and they want to destroy the Jewish people or they want to destroy America. We won't worry about what happens when our economy collapses. Instead, it will be a time of great peace for the King of Kings will reign and rule in righteousness. And every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Undoubtedly drinking coffee, because that's what's going to be in heaven, is drinking coffee sitting under a fig tree, right? So the question is this. So as we look back and we, we see these promises, the question is this. How do we, here's where it comes, this is what you've all been waiting for, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all this to our lives? How do we take this text and then apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we need to look to the Lord to remove our filthiness. Folks, we come before the Lord incredibly filthy, covered in nothing other than human excrement. Even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. So we need to look to the only one who can remove our filthiness. We need to stop trying to clean ourselves up. Most of my problems throughout the week and in life come when I forget who it is who reclothed me. And I start trying to do things in my own strength. And I start trying to reclothe myself or cleaning up my mess. I'm like, yeah, I got this. I don't need you, God. I can get this filth off of me. And you know what? It gets nastier and grosser as I do that. We need to look to the Lord to remove our filthiness. Number two, we need to be faithful to the Lord in serving Him. There's no option. When the Lord removes your filth, when the Lord reclothes you with robes of righteousness, with festal robes, He also puts a turban on your head and says, this is one who is called as a priest. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We intercede. We we come to God directly and we intercede for each other. And we intercede for ourselves. We, We come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're faithful in serving Him. As a follower of Jesus, He has put a clean turban on your head and you can serve Him. And number two, number three, excuse me, we need to look to the Lord for hope. We need to eagerly await His return. I've been more and more convinced that I don't think we await His return, eagerly await His return enough. I think that there's, there's danger in those who say, you know what, they're just bitter and unhappy, and they're like, I hope the Lord comes back today, and they're unhappy with, with what God has given them here. But I think there's also danger in saying, well, You know, Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight, right? As the country song says. Instead, we should be focused on, 
to, to live as Christ, but to die is gain. Lord, come back. Come back quickly. Lord, I want to see this promise fulfilled ultimately. I want to invite my neighbor over to come sit under my fig tree. Right? I, I want to see peace on earth, and I know that you are the Prince of Peace. And in the meantime, I will provide this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only means of peace by which they will ever see in this world until the coming of the Messiah. So as believers, and as a church body, we need to look to the Lord to remove our filthiness. We need to be faithful in the Lord and serving Him. And we need to eagerly await His return, looking for the hope that only He provides. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. And God, I thank you for the truth of your gospel. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, anyone who has not placed their trust in you, this trusting in themselves, this trusting in their own righteousness, that is trusting in the fact that Maybe they haven't sinned as bad as somebody else. God, that they would see that all have sinned. That every one of us stands before you guilty except by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for your Son who died in our place, who was raised on that third day, who intercedes on our behalf, who took the punishment that we deserved. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not accepted the gift of your son, Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. That they would cry out to you and say, Lord, save me. And God, I pray for those of us that have made that profession of faith, that, that recognize that it's not about walking an aisle or saying a prayer, but that are faithfully seeking to serve you, not by our own strength, but by the grace that you provide day by day living in those clean robes, wearing that turban of service, God, that we would be faithful. God, that you'd strengthen us, encourage us, help us to fix our eyes on heaven. Help us to fix our hope in you. Help us to be joyful in awaiting the promise of your son, his return. And God, I just pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ today. Amen.